Hi, folks. Thanks for joining us. Those that are in person with us, we're glad that you're here in the room. And those that are joining us on one of our streaming platforms this evening or on our podcast sometime later, uh, we're grateful that you are uh, able to uh, be here with us as well. Uh, this is going to be our second week here talking about spiritual gifts, where we're thinking about that we are uh, all filled and our church is filled with one Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And yet he uniquely gifts uh, individual members of the body to serve in a vast um, variety of ways. And we're going to look at some of those specifics this week and some of them next week, some of those specific ways, hopefully moving towards you being able to identify not only how the Holy Spirit has gifted you, um, but how you use that within this local body where God has uh, called you to be if this is. I recognize we probably have some people watching with us or listening to this or whatever local body it is that you are part of. So let me open us in prayer and then we'll uh, dive into our subject for tonight. Father, we thank you uh, that we can gather together and that we can be here uh, with one another today. Um, we thank you, God, for what we talked about last week the uh, diversity of the body, how different we all are. Um, and we recognize that we're different uh, in a lot of ways. There are physical ways um, that, that we are different, but there's also ways that you have uniquely gifted us and making us different parts of the body. I'm grateful, God, that we're not all one thing, uh, but that you uh, uniquely... Uh, weave together uh, people that you bring into the life of the church for however long you bring them into uh, that local church uh, to use their gifts from you for your glory and for the building up and edification of the body. So as we begin to think about what some of these specific gifts are, uh, would you help people to see how you've gifted them? I imagine there are people that think, I just don't know what my spiritual gift would be. I don't know that God has really done that in my life. Would you open their eyes to that and help them to see uh, how not only unique, but how important they are uh, and how it's important for them to use that gift here in the church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new with us, if this is your first time um, either listening to this with us or, or with us in person, if you weren't here last week for the beginning of this series, I'm not going to go back and teach it all, but I do want to at least define spiritual gifts for us again, um, because we're operating off of an assumption that I'm going to be operating today, and particularly this week and next week, off of an assumption that you know what I mean when I say the word spiritual gift. So this is Wayne Grudem's definition from the Bible Doctrine book that we sell in the lobby. And uh, he, I think, has a really concise definition. He has some really good theological definitions in there. Uh, and this is his definition of spiritual gifts. It's any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. So we're not limiting ourselves uh, only to thinking about spiritual gifts as spiritual gifts that are listed in Scripture, even though what we're going to look at today are all going to be spiritual gifts that we see listed in Scripture. Um, but what I think you would find is even if you were to identify your spiritual gift as being something that may not be directly 
mentioned in uh, one of the spiritual gift lists, which are not intended to be exhaustive. There's not one place we can go in the Bible and say, okay, this is all of the spiritual gifts. But if you were to, to, to identify a spiritual gift that's not in one of those lists, uh, it, it's probably a derivative of, it probably is a very close relative uh, to, to the many gifts. And I think uh, last week we said somewhere in the neighborhood of 21, 22 different spiritual gifts that are listed in the different lists uh, within the New Testament. So this is any ability, any way that God has taken uh, either a previous talent, a previous skill that you had or some, unskill, uh, some skill that you didn't have and have empowered you by the Holy Spirit, but not just so that you can be able to do something on your own, but so that it can be used within any ministry of the church. So it's not just used within the teaching ministry of the church or the elder ministry of the church, but spiritual gifts are used in any ministry of the church to help the church accomplish its purpose. Our purpose as a church, we believe the purpose of the local church, not just our purpose of our church, but the purpose of the local church is to make disciples that make disciples. We get that from the Great Commission. That's why it's on our wall here. So we make disciples together. That's what we do. That's been the mission of God's church uh, since Jesus commissioned it with his disciples before his ascension. I believe it'll be the, the mission of God's church until uh, Jesus returns. And uh, you are spiritually gifted. That's what we saw last week. You've been gifted by the spirit to be able to serve within the local church, within the body that God has put you in, in a very specific way. And you serving in that way is important. Uh, without you, we, we struggle. If God has called you to be a part of this church, if you're not using your gift in it, then there's something that's not being done here. Uh, it doesn't mean that on the surface, we can't look out and say, well, everything's being done that needs to be done, but it, everything's not being done to the, to the uh, ability that we could as a body be doing it if you're not utilizing your gift. So everybody's important, everybody's gifted, everybody's important. Not everybody's the same and never, not everybody's gifts are the same and the level of giftedness is not the same, right? We saw that it's uh, from very, it's the varied grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so there are people who are more gifted uh, than uh, you are. There are people who are less gifted than you are and our prayer and our desire for as long as the Lord leaves us as a part of his church uh, on earth that we would pray, God, would you increase my gift? Uh, God, would you, would you make me more useful? Not so I can have accolades and praise, not so that I could be exalted, but so I could be a, a, a better contributor to the kingdom of God. And whatever that looks like in your life and however that looks like in your service of the church and in your ministry uh, here, that's what we would desire to do. So that's kind of where we left off last week. I hope you walked away with that whether you listened to it or you were here in person with us, hope you walked away with uh, being convinced that you, you have a place, you have a purpose, that ministry isn't just done by the paid professionals. It's actually the exact opposite of that. To think about church in that way is to think about church in a very wrong way. It's to think about church in a very, I think, 20th century American way. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of move away from the corporate understanding of church and I say corporate, I mean like corporation, you know, hierarchies and CEOs and um, into that every one of us have a place and every one of us are, are, are working towards the kingdom of God. So that's what I wanted you to get last week. You're important and God has gifted you. 
Now, you may not know what that gift is, and it's why there's more than one week in this series. So I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. This is going to be the driving passage for the next two weeks. Um, there's enough information here in this passage. It's going to take me two weeks to get through all of it. And so let me read this for us. Uh, Peter writes, as each received a gift. So he's writing this to Christians. He uses a past tense verb. Each has received a gift. So the Holy Spirit has gifted in Peter's mind everyone that he's writing to. He says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So Peter is affirming some things we saw from Paul in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 last week. And that is that the gift that God has given to each one of us is used to serve one another. That's used to, to accomplish the mission of the church. That's what's, so this is how we serve one another, right? The building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, that, that we're doing this mission together as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so Peter affirms the same thing that we saw Paul, Paul affirm in Romans 12, that it's the varied grace of God in our lives. So some are going to have, um, maybe have more gifts than others. Some are going to have gifts that seem stronger than, than others, but nonetheless, all have received it and all have a mandate from 1 Peter, chapter, 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 10, to use it. So not using your gift is, is not an option for the Christian, right? But notice what he says in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So our gifts aren't for us. They're not for us to be proud of or even work to exalt ourselves in. Our gifts are, are given to us by God. And then Peter does something here that I think is really helpful and is going to kind of serve as the parameter for the next two weeks. He says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, Within the text, within the, the context of what Peter is saying is he's really agreeing with what Paul says in Romans 12, right? And the one who uh, exhorts in his exhortation, right? The one who leads with zeal, that, that all of these are, we're supposed to do this to the very best of the, gift, very best of the gifts that God has, has given to us. And, and Peter's saying that, but he only mentions two things, speaking and serving. And he connects both of those with the, the optimal outcome, right? The one who has the gift of the gifts that would fall into the category of speaking. We need to see it as if we're speaking oracles from God, that this is, that God is, has something for you to say within his church. And the one who serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So the gifts that fall into the serving categories are going to be strengthened as if God himself is working through you. And it's these two categories that we're going to consider this week and next. Um, this week, we're going to talk about the teaching gifts, the speaking gifts. If we were to use the terminology of 1 Peter 4, I'm going to call them teaching because that makes a little more sense uh, within our mind. Uh, and then next week, we're going to look at the serving gifts. Now, I said this last week, it bears repeating uh, before we start looking at uh, um, individual uh, teaching gifts. And I have seven of them that I want us to look at tonight. Um, but if we're, 
it, it bears mentioning, most of you aren't going to find your gift tonight. I'm starting with teaching gifts because I'm just kind of working through this passage and he talks about those who speak as one who speaks oracles of God before he talks about those who serve. That doesn't mean that the teaching gifts are more valuable than the serving gifts. It's just you had to pick one to go in front of the other. However, most of you are not going to identify directly with one of these as your primary gifting within the local church. Uh, I threw out a percentage last week, and the reason I've always thrown out this percentage is because I had a pastor who used to talk about this, and when he did, he always threw out this percentage, and it seems to work. That about 80% of the church is going to be gifted to serve in the primary capacity, and only about 20% are going to be gifted to teach, because we, need, we don't need as many teachers as we need servants. We need a lot of people doing a lot of hands and feet kind of ministry. We, we need relatively few people actually sitting in front of people or standing in front of people teaching. Uh, so, so some of you will identify with some of these today. Um, even if you don't consider teaching your primary gift, you may consider some of these today to be some secondary way in which the Holy Spirit has gifted you. But most of you will certainly identify with some of the gifts that we're going to talk about next week. But let's talk about the teaching gifts. What are the primary teaching gifts mentioned and demonstrated in Scripture? So for each of these, I'm going to show you where we find them in the list. I'm not going to read every list every time, but I'm going to at least show you which list we find these in. I'm going to show you how Jesus demonstrated these. I think in every one of these cases, I'm going to be able to show you at least in something Jesus said or something Jesus did that shows how Jesus himself demonstrated these spiritual gifts, which by the way, Jesus being God had all of the spiritual gifts to fullness, all right? So there's no one that would be more gifted than Christ in any of these ways, right? As God made man, he's going to be the, uh, the fullness of every single one of these gifts. So we should be able to go to the gospels and find some way that Jesus demonstrates these gifts to us. I'm going to show you how to do that tonight. Um, and then we'll also see, so we'll see the list that they're in. Uh, we'll see wh the way that Jesus demonstrates them. And then I'll see at least one other place where this gift is demonstrated to us by someone in either the Old or the New Testament. Because I do believe that while the Holy Spirit operates differently within the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Holy Spirit still gifted certain people in the Old Testament. So there will be some people we see utilize these gifts in the Old Testament. Most of them will be in the New Testament and it'll either be an action a person does or an instruction from an apostle to someone else to utilize that gift. That with, this, is, this is the point, right? That our spiritual gifts aren't supposed to just be something we read in a list and think, oh, that sounds good. I must have that, right? Or we take some kind of spiritual gift inventory. If you've been around the church long enough, somebody's had you do that. Take some spiritual gift inventory and you're like, oh, this is, this is what I have. No, these are actually like practical things that Jesus demonstrated to us, that Old and New Testament saints showed us how or instructed us in how to utilize them. So there's, there's more to this. And, and I'm, I'm gonna, I've, I've already said I'm going to give you seven teaching gifts. And some of you are like, how are there seven teaching gifts? Okay, well, there's probably more. Seven's what I'm going to have time to talk about tonight. These are kind of going to be the primary ones. We'll have even more serving gifts uh, to get through next week. So the first one is this, the general gift of teaching. Now, I know that sounds a little bit like a cop-out since th these are the teaching gifts. Um, but there is, like I am doing right now, a gift of, 
of teaching. And each one of these I'm going to give you a definition of unless uh, I indicate it, uh, these are actually definitions that are, are unique uh, to me. So, the, this, so these are meaning, these are my definitions. Okay, I wrote this. Um, the, the, general gifts of, the general gift of teaching, so just like the spiritual gift of teaching is the God-given ability to clearly understand and articulate the word of God in such a way that those being taught grow in their understanding of scripture and are then able to make application from the text. So it's the God-given ability to clearly understand and articulate the word of God in such a way that those being taught grow in their understanding of scripture and are then able to make application from the text. Now, I'm gonna try to read every definition twice. If This is probably the longest one. You can always come to me afterwards if you didn't get everything or you could always check our online. Um, and if, for those of you that just like to write down every word, okay? Now, I've used, I use this definition fairly often in conversations with people who are wanting to talk about, and this may seem, may seem odd to you at first, but are wanting to talk about what it is elders do within the life of the church. Because one of the requirements of an elder in the church is they have to be what? Able to, 1 Timothy 3, they have to be able to teach Meaning that they, while teaching may not be their primary gift, it may not be the primary way that they serve within the local church, an elder has to be able to teach or he can't be an elder. For a man to be an elder in, in our church, one of the things that our elders gauge before we would ever put a man before you, for you as the congregation to recognize them as an elder, is this, is this man able to teach? Now, that doesn't mean he has to be able to preach, Okay, because we would kind of separate preaching and teaching, at least to, to some degree. Doesn't mean he's got to be the best small group leader that we have. Or that he'd be able to get in here and, and do this to the same level that I'm doing. But he's got to be able to do this. He's got to be able to, clear, to understand the word of God, to articulate the word of God, and to do so in a way that people understand it and apply it. That that's what it means to teach the word of God. So when I sit down and talk with guys, we've... Uh, since in my time here, we've onboarded two new uh, elders. We've been in the process over the last several months with another. There are other guys that are uh, kind of early in the stages that have, have been asking questions about being an elder at our church. And when the, the qualification of must be able to teach comes up, this is kind of the definition that I go to. So it's not only knowing the Bible and being able to tell people about the Bible, it's being able to do it in a way that that they're going to understand it and going to be able to draw application, be able to do what it says. That's what application means. So where do we see this? Well, this is really easy to see in the life of Jesus, isn't it? Because Jesus taught a lot. And we, while we don't have everything that Jesus taught, we have a lot of the things that he taught. And he was so uh, popular for his teaching that probably the most popular uh, word used to describe Jesus by people outside of his disciples was rabbi, which literally means teacher. We're told in Matthew 4, 23, and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so Jesus kind of, in, particularly early on, now he taught all throughout his ministry, but early on in those early stages of his uh, ministry, he stayed in Galilee and really kind of got his start going from town to town, went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. And every little town of any size at all would have had a synagogue. 
And Jesus went from synagogue to synagogue. And we see some of those. We, we're recorded, uh, scripture records some of those teachings for us, some of the ones that he did in synagogue, some of the ones that made people really mad in, in some of the synagogues, uh, like in, in Nazareth. Um, but this is what he did. So Jesus demonstrates through his whole ministry what does it mean to be a teacher? Because clearly he understood the word of God, right? As the word of God. <laughs> he understood the word of God was able to articulate it in a way that people could understand it and apply it. Now, I think it's important to draw out of Jesus' ministry this. Not everybody that Jesus taught understood. And not everybody that Jesus taught applied, did they? There were people that walked away. There were people that didn't listen to Jesus. There were people that refused to listen to Jesus. There were people like, what, the rich young ruler who knew what Jesus saying was true, meaning they understood it, but still weren't willing to live it. So we can't judge a teacher by the uh, metric of, well, does everybody in the room listen and understand? Because there are going to be people who have a rebellious heart and maybe they won't because that's exactly what they did with Jesus. So let's hold teachers to the same level of accountability that Jesus would have been held to. And, we, and it, it can't always be by the result uh, even though you should see some results, there should be some people who are able to hear and understand it. Paul instructs Timothy, um, kind of, if, if Paul is that second generation, or, you know, he's, he's, he was, while he wasn't one of the disciples, if we consider Jesus passing on to that first generation of disciples, Paul is kind of a, a cousin to them, right? He considers himself the least of the apostles. Well, then he passes on to a new generation of church leaders in Timothy, the importance of teaching within the church. And in 1 Timothy 4, starting verse 6, we read, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the word of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness of value in every way as it holds promise for the uh, present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For, this, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the things, uh, the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And then he says this, command and teach these things. So this call to sound doctrine, this call to rejecting nonsense, this call to godly training and this, the, right, this toiling and striving towards God in this life, he, he tells Timothy, teach these things. That it's important that we teach people. When you think about what's being said here, it's important that we teach people what does sound doctrine mean and what does obedience mean? to a life in Christ mean? That's really how you could sum up what Paul is writing here, even though he uses some negative illustrations like uh, irreverent silly myths, right? He's saying, don't be devoted to those. But if we were to really sum up what Paul's writing in 1 Timothy 4, it's there's, there's sound doctrine and there's sound practice. And he says, Timothy, teach these things. The church has to have teachers. It has to have men and women because men and women can be teachers within the local church. There are some environments within the local church that um, the New Testament restricts the teaching to um, authoritative teaching of a man. And so uh, we, uh, we practice that within our church, but we don't 
we don't say only men can teach in every circumstance within our church. So there are men and women that God gifts to teach and their teaching should be instruction, right? Knowledge and living. It should be application. So that's the general gift of teaching. These others are related to it. And I see each one of these as being somewhat akin to teaching. Some people who are teachers are going to, that teaching gift is going to be paired with some of these, but not in every case. So again, it's it's not only those who sit like in the first chair of uh, a preaching ministry or the first chair of uh, uh, some other teaching ministry like a small group or an equipped class in our church, that those are the only people that are, that are gifted with a teaching type gift. In some cases, there are people that th- those people will have some of these other gifts and in other cases, there will be other people that come alongside of that teacher in helping them to teach and supporting that teaching ministry, all right? And you're gonna see that unfold and you'll see how some of these things are related. So the second one is the spiritual gift of knowledge. The spiritual gift of knowledge is the God-given ability to research, study, and recall biblical information at the appropriate time. The God-given ability to research, study, and recall biblical information at the appropriate time. Now, oftentimes, the the spiritual gift of teaching will be paired with the spiritual gift of knowledge uh, within the same person because we'll see how, obviously, how that can be important. But that's not always the case. There's always going to be some level of knowledge and some level of learning that's going to be necessary because the teacher is going to have to communicate what they have learned to someone else, right? They've got to communicate that doctrine. They've got to communicate that practice and, and then be able to bring that application uh, in, in a person's life. But it could be that someone else coming alongside of this person, it could be that your primary role within your small group, for instance, is uh, that you demonstrate the gift of knowledge, that you study your word, you research your Bible, you, and, and God has given you the ability to recall some of those things. So, you know, oftentimes the teacher, from a knowledge perspective, I'm about to use a term, and I'm talking strictly from a knowledge perspective, the teacher, a primary teacher in whatever the context is, whether it's the preacher in the, in the worship center, small group leader in a small group, uh, teacher in a equipped class, whatever it is, the, the, the preacher teacher may not, and I would even say often is not the smartest person in the room. They're often not the most knowledgeable person in the room. Listen, if it, require, if it was required to be the most knowledgeable person in the room, even Bible knowledge, the most Bible knowledge in the room, there's no way I would be the preacher, folks. And this is an encouragement to me. I'm not saying this. Look, I consider myself a student of the word. I've used this example um, a hundred times. I'll probably use it a hundred more in my ministry, if not more. Um, But my mother has forgot more about the Bible than I'll ever learn. I mean, she, she knows... If I got a question, I call my mom. <laughs> like, what, what is this? And she's like, oh, well, look here and look here. And God's gifted some of you with that same thing. I mean, people will come to me after the service and I'll have studied a lot on the sermon. And I think I'm making the best connections that I could possibly make. And somebody will come and go, did, did you think about this connection right here? I'm like, oh, 
never. I didn't think about it, but man, I wish I would have, right? Because God just is able to bring, and look, it never offends me when people do that because it, it makes me better. It makes me want to make some of those connections uh, even, even in a better way. So maybe that's the way God's gifted you is you just, you have a way to retain Bible knowledge and where verses are. People come to me all the time and think, because I'm the pastor, like they'll say, hey, you know, I know the Bible says this, where does it say it? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Hold on, let me Google it, you know, <laughs> because you could have done that and saved us this embarrassment. Um, so, but maybe you're able to do that. You're just like, oh yeah, that's in this, this passage. Every, that's a fantastic gift to have. And it may be that you use that in direct teaching. It may be you use it in the support of someone else's teaching ministry. The gift of knowledge is mentioned. I'm not going to read again all the lists, but it's mentioned in the list in 1 Corinthians 12, specifically in verse 8. We see this in the life of, uh, in the life of Jesus in, in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Right, here's what Jesus is, is recognizing. And of course, he's talking to people who have rejected his teaching, right? But Jesus knew what the, what the scriptures and the scriptures that Jesus is referring to there in John 5, 39 is the Old Testament. Obviously, that's, that's the scriptures for Jesus during his ministry. And, and Jesus is looking at people who thought they knew the scriptures, but they didn't know them nearly as well as he did. And he knows that the scriptures point towards. He knows that that biblical information points somewhere. We see this in, in, we see this in the lives of a lot of people, but one of the places that I, that I really see this show up is in, is in an Old Testament um, person named Ezra. Ezra obviously has a book of the Bible named after him, but Ezra actually appears in a couple of books of the Bible. He's kind of the last narrative story that's taking place in the Old Testament, even though it's not at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, it's the end of the narrative section of the Old Testament. And it's after the exile. It's in the um, late 400 AD, um, uh, mid 400 AD. Ezra returns, rebuild the temple. Nehemiah returns to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And Ezra's kind of serving as the de facto spiritual leader, right? Nehemiah is kind of the the political leader and Ezra's kind of the spiritual leader. In Ezra 7.10, we read, for Ezra had heard, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. So in Ezra 7, we see he's going to study. He's going to have knowledge about the word of God. Then we fast forward to Nehemiah chapter 8, and at the completion of the wall, Ezra stands and reads the whole book of the law to the people and the people stand. It's why we stand before I preach. It's a, it's, it's a recognition of the Old Testament people of God standing. They stood all day, but it wasn't just they were standing all day and one guy was reading. There's something that at the end of that passage in Nehemiah 8 verse 8, it says they read from the book, from the book of the law clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So who's they? Because it doesn't just say Ezra. It was Ezra that stood before all the people. But somewhere between Ezra 7.10 and Nehemiah 8.8, Ezra actually communicated the knowledge to other people that he had learned and trained up some other people. So when you get this culminating event of teaching, all of this knowledge just kind of comes pouring out, right? And they don't just stand and read the book of the law, 
which that's how often people want to talk about what happens in Nehemiah 8, is this that they stood and they read all day and everybody was just kind of standing their board. It's not what they did. They preached, okay? So that the people understood the reading. You kind of get this idea that you've got all of these people that Ezra had taught and passed knowledge onto that's now out in the crowd passing on knowledge as the books being read. It's probably kind of a uh, a hectic type event, you know, where, where people are, people are being helped by people with the spiritual gift of knowledge to understand what's being said to them. That's the gift of knowledge. Number three, the spiritual gift of wisdom. You know, the difference between wisdom and knowledge, right? Well, we know what that means in like in the practical world. Okay. Well, what does it mean in the spiritual world? Well, the spiritual gift of wisdom is the God given ability to see people in situations for who and what they are and to know how and why to act in difficult circumstances. Knowledge is knowing information. Wisdom is being a good judge of what's going on and what we should do. The, the spiritual gift of wisdom is listed in the 1 Corinthians 12 list, particularly in verse 8. And wisdom is an interesting gift because in the, in the uh, world, we use these same terms. We use, I mean, all three of these terms so far, teaching, knowledge, wisdom. These are all things that people do outside of the local church. Hopefully you're seeing how this is specific to the church. But when people think of wisdom outside of the church, they often think of wisdom comes with what? Age, right? That that wise people are older people. And, and that's often true. That's also often true within the church, right? Years tend to hopefully make us wise. That the more we see, the more we're around, um, the, the more we know how to respond, the more we know uh, how to think about a situation rightly and, and what should be done in it. It's not always the case. It's not that all older people are wise. There are still some old fools that are running around, okay? Um, but that tends to happen kind of in a secular sense. However, when we're, seeing the, when we're seeing wisdom as a spiritual gift, we must be willing to at least recognize that God may make young people wise. And that there are times that we may ought to listen, even as older people, to people younger than us, because God has given them the ability to, within the local church, see people in situations for who and what they actually are and know how and why to act in difficult circumstances. And I think the best illustration of this, again, is Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is 12, right? And he's in the temple. And we're told in verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He goes home with his parents and we're told, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That at 12 years old, Jesus was able to demonstrate godly wisdom. Now again, he is the zenith of all spiritual gifts. So that doesn't mean what we need to do is go get all the 12-year-old boys upstairs, you know, and bring them down and say, teach us, right? That's not what's being said here. But I do think it's important to recognize, if we're going to affirm all of these as spiritual gifts, that God will gift younger people with the spiritual gift of, of wisdom. You know, 
wisdom, the spiritual gift of wisdom is, is one of those gifts that when you're around it, you kind of know. And you, you, you often, uh, I've always said this about this, this gift, is these are probably the people that don't talk a lot. That they may be the person that listens to everybody else before they talk. Maybe they're the last person to talk. But they're the person when they talk that everybody wants to, if, if, if everybody's operating within the spirit, right? If they're do, not operating within their flesh, because oftentimes the flesh does not like wisdom, biblical wisdom. But if we're operating in the spirit, we're like, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, why, 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 why didn't I think of that? Um, it, you, you need wise people. I, I am so grateful to, to serve with, uh, on a plurality of elders here with, with eight other men because God has gifted some of those men with the spiritual gift of wisdom. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of the best laid plans. You know, I'll make all these plans and, and uh, we'll go to present it and, and, and I'll talk a lot. And then somebody will go, have we thought about this? You know, tearing stuff up. Because that's the right way to think about it, right? Spiritual gift of wisdom uh, is, is essential to the church. We just don't want to think that it always equals gray hair. It sometimes does, but not, not always. We see this demonstrated not only in Jesus, but in the life of uh, Solomon. I think when you think wisdom, you got to think Solomon, right? Solomon's told he could pray for anything. He doesn't. He prays for, to have a wise mind instead of, you know, riches. And God says, okay, because you prayed for that instead of this, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you. You're going to be the wisest person to ever live. And then immediately that wisdom's tested, right? And it's the two women that come with the baby and it's, you know, cut them in half, the story from, from 1 Kings 3. And after that story in 1 Kings 3, somebody may not know that story and you're like, wait, cut the baby in half? Or maybe I need to go read that. Well, maybe you should. Um, at the very end of that, in 1 Kings 3, 28, you read, and all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. I just love that. And I feel like that's, that's how I feel when I'm around people with a strong gifting in wisdom. Because you, you just, you go, man, this person, this person's got, like they're, they're seeing this, right? And, uh, and, and that's what happened with Solomon. All of the people were able to perceive that, that Solomon was, was wise of God and was able to do justice. So his wisdom wasn't just knowledge. I think that's an important uh, side note there, that, that Solomon was able to make, make application. He knew what to do. It was a difficult, go back to our definition, right? Um, the God-given ability to see people in situations for who and what they are. Well, Solomon was able to see that. He was able to see these two women for who and what they are. He was able to see that baby for who and what, he was able to see the situation for who and what it is and know how and why to act in difficult circumstances. Well, that's certainly a difficult circumstance, isn't it? Right, two women claiming one baby, this is, this is certainly a difficult circumstance. And Solomon, even though it was very unconventional, knew exactly what to suggest to make the true mom step forward and say, no, no you, she can have the baby, right? Um, j- just out of defense of her child. And so it's not, again, this is, again, this is the difference between knowledge and wisdom is that all of the people were able to see that he was wise of God and was in him to do justice. After that moment, all of the people of Israel trusted in the type of justice that um, Solomon would, uh, would give out in the kingdom because 
they believed in him because they, they recognized what, what was there. And so we need wise people. We need to recognize wise people. We need to listen to wise people. If you don't have wise people in your life, get wise people in your life <laughs> because they're going to save you a whole lot of heartache, a whole lot of headache, a whole lot of trouble. All right. Number four, prophecy. This, this I am borrowing. I'm going to, I phrased this the same way at the beginning, the God-given ability to, and then um, I am quoting from, from this point on from Wayne Grudem from his book because he deals extensively with the spiritual gift of prophecy in that book. And I thought he defined it better than I could. So it's the God-given ability to tell, and this is in, in quotes, something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. The God-given ability to tell, quote, something that God has spontaneously brought to mind, end quote. Now, before we get into where these are in the Bible, let's just talk about what this definition, because this definition is kind of clear, uh, but what we're not saying when we say that there is a spiritual gift of prophecy within the church. Number one, these are ways that I think local churches, um, theologians uh, have, have misunderstood this gift and possibly even misused this gift. And we still see this misuse within uh, within some places today. Number one is that we misunderstand that the spiritual gift of prophecy somehow means predicting the future. Um, there were a lot of prophets, okay? I'm using, and I'm using that term real loosely. There were a lot of prophets between November 4th and January 21st, whatever it was, 20th, that that prophesied about who the president would be. And they were wrong, right? And none of them should have a pulpit anymore. If you want to know how I believe, listen, if you're going to say God has told you the future, and this is, this is actually what we see in the Old Testament. In the few places we actually do see comparative, relatively speaking, Within prophecy, it's like 90, 10, 90% of prophecy in the Old Testament deals with the here and now, 10% dealt with the future. And, um, and, and basically, this is why some of them told the future. And most of the time, it was, it was a relative immediate future in a way to affirm what the prophet was saying about the here and now. So here's my thing, man. If you want to be a modern prophet and you want to tell the future and it doesn't come true, you should never get to say anything else again. You, you've, you've blown it right? Because that's what they would have done to the Old Testament prophets. They, they, they would have, they, well, they would have probably done more than just remove them from their pulpit, okay? Because they, they had this really, um, they, they understood the dangers of false prophets. But in most cases, and I would say in, in all cases now, because we have a closed canon, there's no need to predict the future anymore. So there's no need within the church for us to say there's a you know, there's a prophet among us that's going to tell us who the next president's going to be, the next time the stock market's going to crash, the next pandemic we're going to have. There's no need for that in the church anymore. God has spoken, okay? So, and, and God has told us, by the way, about some future events, which I'm going to be dealing with in the next part of our spring equip, right? In a few weeks. God's told us about some future events and all of the future events that God has told us about, he has, that God wants us to know about, he has already told us about. That means I don't have to listen to the guy on YouTube because if God wanted me to know it about a future event, God would have told us about it already because that's the way the scriptures work. 
right? And so because we have a closed canon, we, we don't see a need for prophecy to mean predicting future events. Number two, people have then re, like run away from that version of prophecy. This is what the Baptist church did. We ran away from, and I introduced that last week, uh, from that kind of prophetic word, right? Uh, towards something that it really doesn't mean at all. And so if you were to ask a lot of even Baptist, Baptistic, evangelical, conservative people, what's prophecy? They're like, oh yeah, it's just like really good preaching. It's like really powerful preaching. Well, I, I think we're confusing some things here. I, I think there, there's, there's a reason that the word preach is a word and the word prof, prophecy is a word and sometimes used in similar situations without being synonymous to one another. So I don't think we need to explain it away as an overcorrection of what others have done. Now, another, I should have talked about this one second and then saved the overcorrection because another thing people have done and, and still do in, in some places is they see prophets, even modern prophets, and this has been a problem in the church since we've had the church, but they've seen modern prophets uh, as, as words being elevated to the same level of scripture. And so you'll have churches that have offices of prophet within their church. And what that man or woman says is somehow equal to, equal in authority to scripture. Well, um, I'm, this, isn't, this, this isn't a teaching on um, the, the authority and sufficiency of scripture. But know this, we do not affirm that to be the case at all. There is nothing that I will ever say that carries equal weight with scripture. There is nothing anyone in the church will say, regardless of the position any church has given that person, here or in Rome, okay, that will make their words equal to the word of God, because it is, it is the word of God, all right? So then if it's not those things, what's the middle position? If it's not just powerful preaching, right, but it's also not like, telling the future and predicting stuff and seeing it come true and, and, you know, giving us new and exciting things, you know, that are equal to scripture. What is it? It's, there's gotta be something else. Well, it's, it's being able to, being a vessel for, that God brings something to your mind and, and you share it. And that's it. It, it, it's, it doesn't require, it doesn't require fulfillment as if it's some kind of uh, prophetic future event right? It's not in any way being held up as equal to scripture. It actually must be tested against scripture. So we see the spiritual gift of prophecy mentioned in Romans 12 verse 6. Jesus, obviously a prophet, right? He wasn't just a prophet, but Jesus was a prophet. And oftentimes, most often in scripture, it's, it's, it's here and now, and it's often confrontational. In Matthew 23, Jesus confronts uh, he has seven woes, just two of them, right? And 13 and 14. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow those who enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite, for you travel across the sea and land to make a good proselyte. And when he comes of proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves, right? And Jesus continues, there's seven of them there. There's, this is like really clear, like word from God that's aligned with the word of God. We're not going to write it down and elevate it to scripture, 
but it's still someone speaking the word from God. This is what the Old Testament prophets did. Micah 2, 1, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil in their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because this is the power of their mind. Oftentimes the spiritual gift of prophecy will manifest itself within the local church because the local church has, has allowed sin to linger. And it requires somebody to say, we've got to do something about this. God, God, God will not be mocked. God will not, God will not, uh, his spirit will not stay upon a place that, that allows hypocrisy, that, that allows wickedness, right? But that, it's not only in the negative. We also see illustrations of prophecy in the Old Testament and in the New where, where there's a promise of coming salvation. In Jeremiah 16, the prophet Jeremiah says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where it should not long be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord who lives brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their land that I gave to their fathers. Now, here's the thing about what Jeremiah is saying in Jeremiah 16. He wasn't the first guy to say that. <laughs> That had already been prophesied by other prophets who preceded Jeremiah before Israel fell, right? He's, he's saying what has already been said. And so he's, he's talking about a promise of salvation. And, and so if, if prophecy can manifest itself within the local church where we just see people reminding one another about the future promises of God. That's not telling the future. That's just reminding people about what God has already told us he's going to say. It's not giving new details of it. You know, it's not naming the date and the hour, but it is certainly prophetic to say, hey, remember, we're supposed to live as ready people when the church is starting to get lazy. We're supposed to live as ready people because we don't know the day or hour. He's going to come like a thief in the night. So we don't need to mystify prophecy. We also don't need to explain it away. We just need to recognize that there are times where we need a word from the Lord that's in a line with what God has already said. Now, just one quick note on this. And I've still got three of these to do. But I always have to make this note when I talk about prophecy. Rarely I almost use the word never. I don't want, I don't like using the word never, but rarely at least is this personal. Not that it, that a prophetic word couldn't be spoken to one person, one family, but remember this is happening in the life of the church. But if, if you're ever tempted to walk up to me and say, Hey pastor, I feel like God has told me to tell you Just know I'm going to take that with a really, really huge grain of salt, okay? Because number one, if God wanted to tell me, I feel like he could just as easily tell me as he could tell you, okay? Um, but, but number two, it's so often when it's phrased like that, it, it's extra biblical, right? Now, if you want to come up and say, hey, from the scriptures, God reminded me today, and I think this would be a good word for you too, that we need to, okay, hey, look, that's from the scriptures. I'll always take that kind of edification. Um, but I, I do think we need to be careful of thinking, oh, God's given me this message that I need to speak to Jeremy, right? I'm always, I'm always pretty leery of that because it's just not how we see it manifest itself within the scripture. And we need to remember spiritual gifts are given for the ministry of the church, right? And so it's going to far more be a corporate thing than a, I'm going to walk up to somebody and give this personal thing. All right, now I got I to gotta go quick. Uh, number five, evangelism. 
Evangelism is the God-given ability to clearly communicate the gospel message of Jesus to unbelievers so that they can be saved. This is in a list in Ephesians 4. The Ephesians 4 list is a little unique, but it's still there's, there's a, a gifting of evangelism uh, there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. This is God-given ability to clearly communicate the gospel message of Jesus Christ to unbelievers so that they can be saved. Now, you may say, wow, that's great. Uh, since God's going to raise up people with the spiritual gift of evangelism in the church means I don't have to do evangelism. No, that's not what it means, okay? The Great Commission still applies to every single person that's a part of God's church. It applied to the first generation of disciples, it applied to Timothy, the second generation of disciples, and it applies to us, the 2000th generation of disciples. Whatever we are, it applies to us, okay? Until Christ returns, the Great Commission remains. But there are going to be people who God just gives a specific gifting of evangelism to. And I'll be honest with you, if there is one of these that I pray for and wish God would grant me, it's this one. Because uh, if you've ever been around somebody that has this, the, the guy who served as the transition pastor before me here, John Ewart, um, Dr. Ewart had this. And you would talk to Dr. Ewart and, uh, you know, I mean, his drive from, from Raleigh to here, you know, he'd stop at the Shell station or something uh, on, uh, on I-85 and he'd be like, I shared Jesus with you know, this person pumping gas next to him. They're just people that are like that. And, and God... God bless them. Like I'm, I'm grateful. And I actually pray God would bring more people into the life of our church, uh, that, that are like that. So we all have the responsibility of, uh, evangelizing and, and being able to have gospel conversations and share Jesus with people. But we need to recognize there are some people who, who are evangelists that, that do that, uh, as, as their primary spiritual gift. Now they may not, again, these are teaching gifts because this is something that's coming out of somebody's mouth, Right. But it may not be that they're doing it from a pulpit. It may not be that they're doing it from a, in a small group room. When we think of evangelists out, out, of, out of the revivalist movement of the 20th century, mid-20th century, our minds now always think of evangelists as being like a tent revival kind of preacher. Is that what you picture? If you grew up in church, at least in the Baptist church, that's probably what you picture. It's what I, it's what I picture. That's not what it is. Um, <laughs> That's, that, it's not that those people don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism, but we don't need to think that that's even primarily what evangelism is. That evangelism happens in, in the majority of times in, in this, in this, right? That, that we're going and, and we're sending people to places where people need to hear. We're going about our lives in our community and we're telling people about Jesus. I mean, Jesus in Luke 19 says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus demonstrated in his own ministry what the work of evangelism is. Paul then passes on to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. I tend to think what Paul's saying there to Timothy is that Timothy wasn't an evangelist, lies in, as in his gifting. I, I would imagine from what we know about Timothy that Timothy was a gifted, uh, was, was a gifted communicator of doctrine because that was what was needed in Ephesus. He was probably a pretty good organizer too because there was some organizational things to take place in Ephesus. And I think that's what we're seeing in the life of Timothy. But Paul reminds him, you don't get to just hang that evangelism. You, you don't get to not do that. 
while you may not be gifted as your primary gift in evangelism, Timothy, do the work of of an evangelist. Number six, discernment. This is the God-given ability to discriminate whether certain events, people, or teachings are from God and therefore true or from Satan and therefore false. The God-given ability to discriminate whether certain events, people, or teachings are from God and therefore true or from Satan and therefore false. This is in the 1 Corinthians 12 list in verse 10. We see Jesus demonstrate this to us in Matthew 4 in the wilderness, right? Everything the serpent said in the wilderness sounded pretty good, didn't it? You're hungry. Why don't you just make some bread? You're, you, you could jump off of this and the angels would save you, right? I mean, those seem like rational things to say. But Jesus knew they were from Satan. And he knew how to counteract them. He had, he had the discernment to know, wait, this is not of God. This is of Satan. And so it's the ability to know if something's of God and therefore true or of Satan and therefore false. Now, I wrote this material a long time ago. My wife has heard me teach this. I cannot tell you how many times. Um, I wrote this years and years ago as a part of a writing team at my last church. Uh, there were three of us that wrote a year's worth of curriculum um, and, and this, today's lesson and next week's was a part of that. And then I took that curriculum, we used it churchwide and Christy and I took it and we taught it to 12th graders every year. So every year I would teach 12th graders, we would teach 12th graders this, this curriculum, this year long curriculum. I've taught this over and over and over again. Um, and when I wrote that, when I, you know, we would just kind of gloss over discernment, but if you spend very much time on the internet, if you don't, God bless you, don't. But if you spend very much time, particularly on like Christian internet, if there's such a thing as like Christian Twitter, you know, um, there are lots and lots of people that like to claim this gift and like to tell people in very rude and mean and ugly ways that they're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. And here's why you're a heretic. Like I've never heard more people called a heretic than I have in the last few years and it's all online. It's just, we can hide kind of behind this, you know, anonymity of online and we can just label people as like of the devil because, you know, they believe something or got to, and, and listen, there are some things that are of the devil, uh, but not every little disagreement needs to rise to that level, right? So you need to be careful, right? So there's th- this, the, the, the fervor of discernment in the world, in the Christian world has, has, you know, gone up like 500 notches and we probably need to bring it down 499 of them, okay? Um, Because we need to practice this with humility. We need to recognize there are going to be things. I'm gonna get to heaven and find out I was wrong about some stuff. Probably you will too. Um, And and we're doing the best that we can, loving one another and helping one another. Uh, But but Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, where they were having issues at the church at Corinth with with. People saying things that may or may not be true. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So you need people to be like, that's, that's just not right. This happens, I think, in small groups. You know, somebody will share something and somebody else will share something else. And you got somebody sitting over in their corner like, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> that's discernment. And God gives us, hopefully, all Christians some level of discernment. But, but there are some who, this is, this is really their gifting within the church. I tend to know that it's actually their gifting in the church by how they handle it. So people that claim to be like discernment bloggers and discern, like they're all about, you know, discerning right and wrong and, and they're ugly about it. I don't think those people are actually gifted in it at all. 
I think true people that are operating in the spirit, that have the spiritual gift of discernment, are, are, are gentle as they correct people. And they bring people back towards what the word of God says. But discernment is, is a teaching gift. And often it's the one that is affirming the teacher. Or having to help bring the teacher back in a little bit. The final one is exhortation. The God-given ability to encourage, lift up, motivate, or console those in need so that their faith is strengthened. The ability to encourage, lift up, motivate, or console those in need so that their faith is strengthened. We see Jesus demonstrate exhortation in John 11. He knew what was going on, but still weeps with uh, Mary and Martha. He listens to their pain and he encourages them. He uses that pain as an opportunity to encourage them in their walk to the point where one of the sisters, I forget which one, one of the sisters professes, you are, you are the Christ, the son, basically makes the same profession of faith that Peter makes, right? Early in Jesus's ministry, one of the sisters makes here. I mean, this is, um, this is incredible, right? And it's because of this exhortation from Jesus. We have, I guess the, the, Best exhorter, the most well-known one is in Acts chapter 15 as uh, one of the places that Barnabas has mentioned. For a long time, Barnabas was kind of the second chair to Paul on the missionary journeys. He was the encourager. His name actually means son of encouragement, right? But we see this play out not in Paul's life, but in someone else's. There was a young man um, named Mark who uh, kind of didn't have it all together the first time he went out with Paul. And Paul really didn't want to have him again. Uh, but Barnabas wanted to encourage Mark. So actually goes on his own missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, uh, goes on his own missionary journey with Mark. Why? Not because he would be more effective with Mark than he would with Paul. I mean, think about how effective Paul was, but so he could encourage Mark. And ultimately that pays dividends, doesn't it? Uh, we see at the end of Paul's life, he, he, he actually writes and says, bring, have Mark come to me because he's useful to my ministry, right? So that encouragement that took place in Mark's life because of Barnabas played dividends uh, over, the, over the course of time. And so we need people who know how to encourage. We need people who know how to lift people up. We know how people how to motivate people to do more. We know how people to console people. We need people that, that can do that and not just a pat on the back, not just, you know, thanks for doing what you're doing, not just, oh, I'm really sorry that happened to you, but notice in the definition, so that those in need, um, their faith will be strengthened. Remember, this is work within the church. This is something God is doing within the church in the ministries of the church. And we need people, there's times we fail and we need people with the spiritual gift of exhortation to come along and say, hey, look, you're gonna get them next time. You know, don't let this, you know, there are times we start ministries and do ministries here and they don't work out. And that can be so discouraging for people. You have people that, that'll say, well, I don't want to try again. We need uh, people with the gift of exhortation to say, no, you need to try again. God's going to use you. God, God's going God's to do what uh, he wants to do in and through your life. So we, we certainly need these people. So hopefully you've listened to this and maybe you think, okay, I find myself there. I know we've got teachers in the room. I know we've got people. There's probably at least one uh, of every one of these with people in, in the room. And if you say, again, how I started, if you say, wait, I don't see myself in any of these, just wait till next week because I promise you, uh, you, you will in, in those. So let me pray for us to, to close. God, thank you for gifting men and women in our church to teach to communicate, uh, to instruct, 
Thank you, God, that there are people here that know their Bibles and, and that they're able to bring those things to mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're able to look at situations and know how to respond. They encourage, they, they correct, they speak words from the Lord. Thank you, God. Help us, I pray, to use our gifts and to use them well for your glory until your mission on this earth is accomplished, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those that join us online, thank you for being here. Uh, we look forward to having you with us next week. Those that are in the room, uh, thank you as well. Uh, God bless.